0: You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Lesson 1. Basic Hip Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 520 for May 6th, 2020. On today's show pianist Andy Milne who last appeared on the Jazz Session exactly 500 episodes ago. This show exists because listeners like you become members. Please become one today for five or $10 a month at the slash join. My sincere thanks to past guest Chris Green for becoming a member last week. Thanks, Chris. Andy Milne's new Piano Trio album is called The Remission. Andy Milne, welcome back to the Jazz Session. Good to be here. Long hiatus, but good to be here. <laughs> yes, uh, everything in both of our lives has occurred in the, in the meantime. Uh, <laughs> yeah. we, we were just discussing off the air that the last time you were on uh, was at an, for an interview recorded at the 2007 Rochester International Jazz Festival. Uh, I have moved quite a number of times since then and am nowhere near Rochester, and you have... <laughs> your whole life has changed in a lot of ways too. So uh, yeah. it's great to it's great to have you back and to talk about this really fabulous album called The Remission, um, with your Unison trio, which features Johnny Bear and Clarence Penn. Um, I guess maybe we'll just start off with probably the most obvious question I could ask, but what the heck? Why a trio record?
1: Well, I was overdue. I mean I had close friends, musician close friends who had just been kinda nagging me in a nice way for a long time, like, man, you should do a trio record. You really should do a trio record, you know? And I even had some of them were like, I'll produce it for you. Like, it was, it, this was going, you know, back for quite some time. And I'd been like, yeah, yeah, I know. I know I should. And I just, it, one thing I'll do, another, and I was just sort of pushing it off to the side, or, and I got, you know, opportunities that kind of, kind of continued to sort of see me kind of not really making the decision to do that. And I I think part of me was, was uh, you know just hesitant because it is such an exposed kind of thing, and I really wanted to feel like what I when I was going to make that decision that I that I was I felt like I had the the right kinship and, and the material and you know the kinship with the players I should say and then the material as well. So it just t- it took some time to to marinate. Uh, but I but I think you know the the importance of a trio I guess for a pianist is just it's this kind of venerable. Um, you know configuration that that we as pianists often explore both from the point of view of the i guess the the nature of the trio in jazz and, and how it's sort of the the, the cornerstone of, of all rhythm sections generally speaking so it's 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 kind of it's kind of hard to uh, avoid but i i just i guess i managed to do it for a few years <laughs>
0: Well, you know, in terms of the kinship aspect, at least to my ear, it sounds like you slammed to dunk that because you and John and Clarence sound incredible together. Will you talk about putting this particular trio together?
1: If I go back to like the first, John Bear and I probably played together the longest because I started playing with John oh, was close to 10 years ago um, when he started a group called Rambling Confessions. And he incidentally, he had been introduced to me through um, Benoit Delbec, who's a pianist in France that I've had a duo with for a long time, and, and Benoit was one of those people saying, hey, man, should you should do a trio. And so he introduced me to John, and they'd been playing together off and on, and I really loved John's sound. And so uh, when he asked me to play in his group, it was like, oh, for sure. I, I totally dug his sound, I dug his sense of adventure. In the way we were transforming this music, we had uh, you know, Billy Drummond on and, drums and, and, and Jen Shu on vocals. So we, we did a record for Sunnyside and, and played several gigs. And that was a really wonderful group. Um, and so I kind of, you know, had a real connection with John through it, it that initiated in his band. But I just wasn't sure what I wanted to do with the drums. And I guess the longer I delayed in forming this was probably, you know, I guess partly due to just wanting to figure out where I was landing on the drum side of things. And and Clarence Penn is someone I've known since I moved to New York. We both, you know, interacted and lots of mutual, uh, you know, friends and hung out and, and sort of intersected since our beginnings when we both moved to New York pretty much around the same time. Uh, but we had never played together, and just we just always known each other and been friends. And every time I hear him, I would hear him play, I would just kind of go, "Man, I just love the way he just elevates this music." And it was kind of like I remember there was a gig he did with Uri Kane at Winter Jazz Festival, and it was like right after I had done a set with my uh, like Expanded Depth Theory Seasons of Being. Project in 2017 at at in winter jazz at 2017 in New York. It, it was actually uh, incidentally at the New School where I used to teach, and and I remember staying and listening to that set and just kind of going, oh man, Clarence sounds so great. And I remember my wife had gone home because she was on my gig, and she had she had going home because she was pretty you know exhausted. And I I called her I said, or texted her or something. and said, you got to come back. I want you to hear this drummer. You you have to come back. And so she came back. Uh, you know, and, and heard that set of URIs that, that, that Clarence was on and was like totally knocked out. But I mean, I, for me, I was already kind of sitting there going, oh, the writing is so uh, it's sitting me right in the face here. It's like, of course I want to get Clarence on this, on the, in this trio. So I think I asked him, I mentioned it to him that night. We're going down the elevator together. And he's like, yeah, man, call me. And then so, you know, it was several months later, but that was, that was kind of like when I made the decision, I was like, yeah, this is so obvious to me. I, I we have, he has such a kinship with myself and John in these in these wonderful ways that we really care about sound and the and the detail in sound and the and the subtlety in sound, but not to sort of be you know over, overlooked by compositional flow and 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 um, timing and, and and groove and all these other elements.
0: When you said you were trying to figure out where to come down on the drums, you know, in, in terms of what kind of drummer you wanted, what was the kind of math you were doing there? What were the what were some of the options for how you, you might have gone? Now, I don't necessarily mean in terms of people's names, but just, you know, stylistically yeah. speaking.
1: Well, I think stylistically, I think I wasn't sure if the music was going to be, like, where in the, in the sort of sonic spectrum I wanted it to land and where... Uh, and the groove spectrum I wanted it to land and I think there's certain players that, that do certain aspects of that spectrum really well or better than you know one part of it versus another part of it and I think I wasn't sure where I wanted to land with this group because if I think to my other projects that I've had they m- we may you know start out or the compositions themselves may have a um, tendency to lean in a particular direction like in DAP theory you know when i started that group groove was very much like at the forefront and so that was a real like demand that i placed on the drummers in that band but i did i wasn't necessarily placing uh texture uh as a as a, as a huge demand on the drums in at, at those early stages in the band and it, it evolved at, certainly for the last several records for the last two or three for sure um, in terms of the way I wrote and the way I led the band um, that that changed where it was a reflection of, I guess, where I've been growing and, and, and evolving as an artist largely from my own, you know, working groups, different sort of like, you know, smaller projects, but also uh, are one-offs sometimes or, or also just the experiences I've had playing in other people's bands, like playing in Ralph Alessi's group was a huge influence. So, so you know, that kind of shifted my lens for, for what I was thinking for drums and and, and kind of helped narrow it down and realized, oh, Clarence has a bit of both of those things, and like, not just a bit, but a lot, you know, so that was kind of what made it you know, resoundingly obvious to me, it's like yeah, of course, this is the kind of cat I really want to be able to explore in a trio, explore music with in a trio setting.
0: This album, one of the things that struck me most about it as I was listening, I kept thinking of this phrase exactly enough, and there are places like uh, two that really jump out to me are uh, Vertical on Opening Night and Anything About Anything where the potential to do more exists within those pieces as they're performed on the record. But the pieces as they're performed and recorded are like exactly enough like there's just enough of everything you want to hear on those pieces and i feel like that's kind of a a hallmark of this album where um it's it really speaks of people who are there for the music and therefore the actual music being performed like not for some abstract concept of music necessarily and not for their own virtuosity but just there for those pieces and over and over again on this record that just kept striking me like man that's that they knew exactly when to stop or what not to put in right there or you know it feels like as you go along in your career it's a you know I know this is not an original thought to me certainly but it's half the stuff is about what you don't put in and this album really seems to have nailed that uh, at least to my ear
1: Oh, thank you. Well, I mean, it. I mean, it's definitely a testament to to the affinity that we have with with playing with one another, but also just their kind of individual sensibilities. I mean, both of those players are, I mean, very in demand sand, side side players because precisely they 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 have that ability to kind of go, you know, what, it's just enough or you know, and 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 it's like I think this is an interesting kind of topic because that ability to kind of have that spontaneous judgment call of like, you know, okay, not too much salt, you know, not too much uh, pepper, not, you know, whatever. I mean, it's funny I'm using a cooking metaphor because Clarence is really, uh, 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 he's a f- total foodie and, you know, and he, and so he thinks, sometimes I look over there and I see him just cooking a meal uh, in the kitchen because well, when he's playing the drums and like 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 pots anyway. So, but it's like, there's, there's that, ability to kind of really measure um and be responsive to when you can sense that there's another um suggestion being made by one of the other members in the group that kind of helps you go yeah that maybe is a little bit too salty for everybody so I'll I'll stop adding salt now and I think there's there's enough of that respect and trust and and, and common appreciation for these components that that build the kind of compositional stew that that's what's been something that I guess has percolated i'm not using a lot of food metaphors
0: today. <laughs> <laughs> well i'm a little bit hungry actually as we're recording so, uh, yeah, so <laughs> I don't know, maybe I. you are too <laughs> <laughs> the jazz session is the first and oldest jazz interview podcast for 13 years and more than 500 episodes i've been helping musicians tell their stories if you value that mission, please become a member for 5 or 10 bucks a month at the jazzsession.com/join. You'll get bonus episodes, early access to every show, and more. That's thejazzsession.com slash join Thanks. Now back to the episode. save the first track for last uh for a particular reason but i i want to and it's also not your composition so it wouldn't fit into this question anyway but will you talk about okay. the writing the music um you know for this album and how, how you approached putting the music together that was going to appear on the remission
1: so that was tricky because i i mean I, as i mentioned i started kind of putting this group together in 2017 and at the time, I was uh, I was also, you know, endeavoring to create um, and produce an album for my wife, Latonya Hall. And I was like, that was part of that intersection of like, okay, well, this is going to be a trio that could play with her. And they've both got experience playing with great vocalists. And it just, it was like, okay, well, we can kind of do that. And we can do whatever I'm going to do, which was sort of like trying to figure out which was going to come first. But I understood that. Musically, maybe we'd be a little bit more down the middle or we'd be a little bit more playing a certainly more supportive role, but also, you know, kind of thinking about where this group is going to go. And and so, like, compositionally, I think I initially was like, well, I don't know, maybe we'll be playing a bunch of standards and we'll just play them kind of loose and thinking about how we're just sort of get organic with the material and, and maybe some of those sounds will inform these original compositions. And then I started writing. And as I was writing, I realized, you know, hey, these aren't really tunes that are meant for this group. And we played them and rehearsed them and we even actually recorded a bunch. And I just I was like, yeah, this isn't the right music for this band. And I think what was, was sort of leftover kind of sensibilities that I've been like writing for, you know, other groups, but specifically for Adapt Theory for a long time. And so I kind of knew how to write for that band. And I think there was a lot of that stuff that was sort of leaching into the way I wanted to, like, approach this, which was a different group, different sensibilities, a different time in my life, and, and something different that I wanted to express. And so I had to kind of, like, figure out how to, like, I, didn't say, I don't want to say close the chapter because I don't see that as a band that's finished, but I just had to kind of learn how to isolate some of those sensibilities and 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 sort of allow different parts of myself to come to the forefront. So the first draft was a little... Off for what I wanted this to be for this group, and so I kind of scrapped a lot of that music and then started again and so some of the music, I think I ended up using music that I had written not for any particular group, but learning how to kind of interpret through the lens of this band, so it's interesting you mentioned two of these pieces like without even really maybe realizing it, or maybe it was part of your master plan but i you mentioned vertical and opening night and anything about anything and and both of those tunes I had written quite some time not you know a few years ago i had done a, several film scores for william shatner and both of those pieces were written uh for those films and so they live in this you know other world now because like the, you know in a film you get like maybe maybe a piece like that like anything but anything you don't even hear the whole piece in the film and i think you get 15 seconds the ending credits are rolling and patrick stewart makes some you know profound statement and then film ends and that piece is playing in the back of uh, a uh, background, and it's like I don't even think you hear the whole form, and so it was like, "Oh man, I wrote this piece, I really like this piece I don't get the you know <laughs> so I started playing it with those guys because it was a it was an opportunity to kind of explore it because it had such a short existence in the film, and then the other one, uh, vertical on opening night I didn't even have most of the material because in the film you don't need all these other. Elements necessarily. So the, all I had to carry the, the 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 scene in the film with Shatner was just this kind of little ostinato in the piano, and this little kind of harmonic movement that was happening. There was no melody. There was no drum part. There was just this kind of underscoring thing. And so I had an opportunity to uh, take some of those pieces from the film, and, and I was uh, performing at Stanford Jazz Workshop a few years ago, and, then, and then I decided, let me take a bunch of these pieces I've written for the, for these films, and actually. Expand them into full performative works, you know. And so I started writing, adding these melodies to it. And so that was another piece that kind of, yeah, you know, it just kind of thought, oh man, A will be all over this melody, so lyrical. It'll be just, it'll, it'll sing, you know. And so it was kind of an easy thing to just bring into this group. And then hearing Clarence kind of just like, you know, use your, you know, speaking to it just, just enough, you know. And there was just enough. And so that was, that was kind of a, those two pieces in a way helped. Maybe set a, a tone for helping me uh, determine how I would write more directly for this band. So then, at the beginning of last year, I really got into that, or I guess the end of the uh, end of yeah the end of 18 going into 19, I really I really kicked into full gear and started writing specifically for them. Now that once they had like a a vision that that I you know found that I guess in my own mind the sort of the sweet spot for what how I wanted to balance their their strengths and balance the different aesthetic uh, sounds that I wanted to you know include and so pieces like uh, Resolution and, and Winter Palace um, The Call and, and, and Dancing on the Savannah those were all really written and Drive by the Fall those were all really written with those guys in mind with this group in mind
0: And, you know, you managed uh, quite skillfully to tell that whole story, especially the part that was set in 2017, purely musically. And meanwhile, in the rest of your life, which obviously influences, you know, your your writing, uh, you were uh, finding out about a cancer diagnosis. You were becoming a professor at the University of Michigan Two very, I mean, they're on very different ends of the sadness and joy spectrum. Um, yeah. But they're both pretty huge and life altering and that was all going on too can you say something about that
1: yeah it was a hell of a year it was a hell of a like 18 month period i mean like i i had i had this you know i finished this big record with Dap theory and then it was going to come out and then all of a sudden i'm getting this you know i knew i wasn't going to be able to do much touring with that band and then so i all of a sudden i get this cancer diagnosis and i'm like, oh. Awesome. You know, uh, okay, I had to switch gears. And so I'm switching gears, thinking about what my how I'm going to, you know, have to make changes in my life and what all this is going to mean and how I'm going to approach treatment and all these kinds of things. And as I'm doing that, then the University of Michigan reaches out and says, we want you to come here and be on our faculty. And I'm like, oh, this is not great timing, people. I've got other fish to to fry. but I was interested, I just, I, I didn't, you know, it was a lot to sort of juggle, and then at the same time, I'm thinking, yeah, I kind of want to get this trio thing going, and so, right, smack dab in the middle of that, I was, I was, like, I think I booked a gig, um, it was like three days before I had surgery, or something like that, or a week before I had to have surgery, so it was, it was um, you know, I was kind of going in, not knowing where I was coming out, but I, but I, I just needed to, I needed to have some sort of level of control in my life, because... So much of what was happening was sort of it felt like it was beyond my control in terms of the timing of it anyway um, and certainly, with my health, it was like, well, I have control, I guess, in terms of the choices I make, but I didn't feel like I had a lot of control in terms of how things had had you know transpired so um it was there was it was just an artistic reaction to like, okay, I'm doing this, and I remember that first gig we did as a trio, like like literally'cause like I said like like a week or half a week before I had surgery, and it, and it was, um, you know, it was like a really wonderful first date. I just remember being so happy playing that music with them, you know, and I didn't even share with them what I was going through, because I just, I needed to kind of get to it, you know, I didn't really want to talk about it publicly at the time, um, so it was a, it was really powerful, and then, you know, then this opportunity in Michigan kicked in, and then I was found myself kind of having to, like, consider how I was going to make a major relocation. And then in the midst of that, I was then, you know, working on the um, first draft of the trio record and then working on a record for my wife, LaTanya, with the, with the trio. And and then I won a Juno Award with the, 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 for my adaptive work. And it was like a pretty intense period. And then I had all this secondary wave of treatment that was happening. And then I came and started this job in Michigan. So it was, it was just a whole lot of change and, you know, a whole lot of... Um, you know, just self-examination, but but I think it was. I don't know if I would have. I mean, but I guess it's just it, like you say, things happen for a reason, and you don't. You know, when they're when they're happening, you kind of just reacting and 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 doing the best you can. And it wasn't like, oh yeah, master plan. Let me have all this kind of come to a head in 2017 because I know I got this master plan answer. Like not at all. Like you know, yeah. You just, you, you're just kind of coping, and and then using and drawing on. I think the. The lessons and drawing on the things that give you strength, and drawing on the things that, that make you happy, and drawing on the things that you can see where you can be of value in the world and in people's lives, and 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 it's, so it's just those decisions are they're informed by so many uh, little things.
0: Man, that is like a whole yeah. memoirs worth of living in eighteen <laughs> months. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's when totally... you write that book, people will say, "Why does it start at this point in your career?" And it's just settle it. It'll be just yeah. keep reading.
1: <laughs> yeah, just keep reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, just imagine something else, I guess. I don't know. I it, it was I I I um I put a post a post on Facebook just early into this uh, COVID-19 lockdown because I had to go ironically send some CDs. I think I was sending the CDs to the guys in the band and, uh, you know, engineers and people that had worked on it. And I went to the post office and it was downtown Ann Arbor and it was completely desolate. And I there was a homeless person that came up to me um, and asked me for his, for my help. And I, I had this $2 bill that I had in my wallet for about like, two years. And I thought, man, I've been so lucky for the last two years. You know, a lot of great things happened to me. And so I gave it to him. And I thought, well, I don't want my good luck to end. (laughs) But I understand these things are, you know, superstitiously or however you believe, but the $2 bill is supposed to bring people good luck. And I I just thought, well, I know this cat's going to need it probably more than I do right now. Not just the two bucks, but the good luck. And so... I, mean, I gave him more than that, but I, but but I, uh, I was sort of like hanging on to this two-dollar bill for some strange attachment reason because I felt like it had served me. Uh, you know, I never spent it. Like, I just literally kept it in my wallet for a couple of years, and it was like a couple of years, despite all these sort of you know crazy changes. So I let it go, but I just it was a weird moment because it was so dark, you know, where you're just like walking around and you're seeing this very quiet town or city that normally is bustling and this, you know, homeless guy's got nobody to ask for help. So it it was an interesting moment, I guess, but it just sort of symbolizes some things for me, I guess.
0: Let's take a moment to thank the folks who make the Jazz Session possible, starting with the members who support it, and also the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music, and Dave Rabel for the logo. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazz jazzsesh, and on Instagram at thejazzsession. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new listeners. You can also help me do that by sharing the show. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcasts, poetry, and more, subscribe to my twice monthly newsletter. Go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. Now back to the episode. Yeah. When you, when you come through stuff like you have come through, I mean, it certainly helps to, to change your focus, to sharpen your focus perhaps about the world around you.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I don't know. I don't know that I could have predicted how I would have uh, fared, you know, um, through making these recordings and just like making these life choices and whatnot. Like, I mean, it's, I certainly wasn't alone. I mean, my wife supported me immensely. But I mean, like it was, it it just it changes it changes how you you know really changes how you see yourself. And I think most artists were often were caught up in the grind of like you know hustling and 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 and, and to sort of pushing ourselves to create and pushing ourselves to stay connected and feel relevant to to, to what's happening in the scene and. And and, and just working on our own craft and development that that we, I mean, it's sort of embedded in that, I think, is our our self-reflective process. But these other things kind of really, you know, um, can smack you uh, in ways that you don't necessarily look at on a daily basis. Like, I think, you know, sometimes when, you know, there's big events that either happen, you know, a mentor passes perhaps too early, you know, uh, or or you know somebody close to you and these kinds of things can or even a mentor that's you know had had a great ride you know like you can these things can we can get we can get into these periods of deep reflection on on the music and our, our role in it um but i mean stuff stuff that i was going through definitely you know kind of catapulted me into like looking at myself and my work and my place you know in ways that i hadn't yet taken the time to really um explore so it was it was a gift in a strange way but um i don't know sometimes i think i wouldn't want to repeat that but
0: (laughs) yeah (laughs) maybe just meditate more and less less cancer yeah 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 yeah. this you know at this time in a a typical episode of this show we would be talking about the upcoming tour uh that you had (laughs) booked to support this record but um, uh you know anyone who's listening to this in real time in 2020 obviously knows that the uh, those things are uh, mostly kaput right now and so i'm wondering yeah. um as both an educator and a performer uh, what is life like for you right now uh since so much has closed down
1: yeah well i mean i am really lucky again like i feel incredibly fortunate like i've had this position at the university of michigan now i'm just finishing my second year and it's been a full-time job but it it has it's left me room to to obviously write music and tour and record and, 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 and perform with other folks and whatnot. And, but it's, it's given me a different, um, uh, you know, you know, sort of level of support, which I, I know many of my peers don't enjoy. And so I've been really lucky. I mean, we had to make a big pivot, you know, six weeks ago and, and go to online teaching. And that's been, you know, a challenge when so much of what I do is really predicated on being in the same room with somebody listening to them play talking to them about like what they're thinking about when they're playing or what they're thinking about when they're writing or listening to other artists and kind of working on the pathways for what they can learn from those other artists so to take that away from us like without any real preparation was really really challenging you know i mean great challenge to have in some ways but it was it was tricky you know i'm just this this, this afternoon i've been just marking some papers that I had my pianist write to give these presentations on different pianists in history that I knew that they weren't hip to, that I wanted them to sort of spend this time in quarantine kind of diving into and then presenting their findings to their, their, their classmates and then writing a paper for me. So so um, I've been just looking at those things. And and, and that was something I hadn't, you know, would I wouldn't have necessarily needed to entertain with my students because normally they're coming in and we're working on repertoire and we're Working on material that they're writing, so it didn't it didn't need to be part of their learning experience. But it, I'm grateful that it, it in a way that this experience kind of said, "Hey, you know what? We're going to make this part of the mix because it's it's important and it gets them thinking in a different kind of way, uh, and and they're sort of getting a personal way of uh, conducting a history lesson for themselves. So that's been really rewarding. I, I'm I'm you know certainly challenged by where it's all going because a I mean. From the point of view of just my life as a performer, and and the sort of our jazz and music, live music. I mean, not just jazz, of course, like live music and the arts in general. The 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 ecosystem that supports that, and the kick that this is that it's taking as a result of this quarantine is like really unfathomable and I and I worry about that and it's not as simple as just like oh we all took a couple days off for the holidays and you can kick the switch back on like it's just it's so much deeper than that and, and that's why I'm really worried about the, the sustainability of a lot of things and it's and it's it's challenging of course you know having young people that you're mentoring who are graduating going out into this world and you're you know if you're looking for the right way to help support that journey for them because it's not, it's it's so so unlike the world that I, you know, went into when I came out of school. So it's, there's different challenges, but I mean, there's of course the hard reality of just like knowing about people suffering or knowing about people passing away and they've got families and they've got, you know, legacies. And it's just, it's, it's, it's a lot of emotions that I know many people are um, trying to process and trying to stay positive and 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 connected and, and inspired and being able to create and and bottom line survive it you know it's it's um, steep.
0: Yeah, I I don't have anything to add to that because I think you you said it beautifully. But yes, it it's no there's no way to know what the future is going to hold for for any of this, which is which is pretty scary. Andy, as we draw toward uh, the close of our time together, I do want to come back around to uh, the first track on the album, which is McCoy Tyner's Passion Dance. And, you know, obviously since uh, you recorded the album and chose the repertoire, uh, McCoy Tyner has passed away. And so I just wanted to give you an opportunity, if you would like one, to say anything you might want to about McCoy.
1: Oh, man, yeah. I mean, ironically, I was giving an interview for Downbeat well, the news that he had passed away was breaking. Um, but I, I I, mean, McCoy is somebody who's one of the first record and one of the first jazz artists I really got turned on to. I mean, I, I credit my brother-in-law for giving me some recordings when I was a young kid. And McCoy's Inner Voices was one of the first records I had. And I, I mean, I listened to that and not really knowing. It was a weird entry point for, you know, because I mean, that wasn't really like what you would... Uh, you no, know, normally kind of identify with McCoy. He's got this big, you know, sort of chorus, this choir singing his tunes, and and you hear that that aesthetic of McCoy in there in the writing, but it, it's it's you know in his playing, of course, too. But it's just not the what what people would normally go. Oh, this is the piano player in this classic John Col- Coltrane quartet. You know, I heard that music much later, and but but I think when I heard that, that you know, when I went back and 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 learned of like certainly the you know hearing passion dance of real McCoy and reaching forth and all those earlier records like i then you know but but understanding his role in the music and understanding his ability as a young player kind of being in trains group and having this um kind of just transformative response in the within the rhythm section to to this titan that, that that was sort of shaking the pillars that we kind of are become somewhat used to at this point you know years and years later but I just I really identified with that uh ability to be you know thrust into this environment as a young cat and and define something um that was you know that changed the way everybody heard and played the piano. I mean there's like this pre-McCoy and post-McCoy um I think experience for everybody that came certainly that everybody that came after him in terms of like there's 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 literally that the very defined kind of um importance in the in the transition of the music. And I think when I was coming up and I was a young guy, you know, of around the same age, um, you know, when I was first moved to New York and I was playing in Steve Coleman's group, it was like, this is a very similar situation where it's like, what do you do as a piano player in this band? And and I I think I took a lot of, you know, cues, not same not to say that the music was the same, but just cues that I guess somebody had the um, tenacity and and the courage to sort of to, to explore that way uh, and find that path um, was kind of a lot of wind in my sails when I was doing my own version of of, of you know answering the question because I always kind of identified with McCoy uh, that way and and when he passed it was really it was just you know I literally I remember just like did the interview in New York in my apartment there and, and then. Looking on Facebook and seeing that he passed it, and, and I—it was just—it was a real gut punch because that was that—that that is like a really important link, you know. Um, and and I, you know, I mean, he was a guy I never really—I—I I got to spend time with him, but I could—I—I I, I had so much respect for him. It was always very difficult to know how to extract information from him. Um, so whenever I would see him, I mean, I did a gig at the Blue Note probably about eight or ten years ago and he was playing that week and I played like the late set and he was, they weren't sure if he was really going to be into playing whether he was going to have any energy. And then the night that I was doing my set, he, he had energy, like in an abundance and he played a set, but they had another artist booked just in case he wasn't uh, up for it. So, so wow. we didn't go on till like two in the morning because the other artist played after McCoy ended up playing a fairly hearty set. So, it was funny, you know. It was funny to sort of have him kind of like have this, you know, surge, you know, that because then they didn't really play much after that period. But I got to hear him play then, and and he had, last time we had hung out, he had come to a gig that I was doing at the Algonquin Room when that was still a functioning venue. And I was playing there with Avery Brooks, and and that was such an honor. And he came to the hit, you know. But but that's a that's an incredible artist. I mean, I came in and had to just do a mccoy thing for for uh my students that that uh following week you know and that was right before we had to go into quarantine so i teach with bob hurst here at university of michigan and so you know bob had some you know mccoy stories and and i we talked about his importance and it was just a you know these things are just it's sort of frustrating when you kind of go to this place because you lose somebody important like that but i think this is a you know, I mean, these are certain figures that will will forever have left a, a serious mark on the music. But you know, it'll be attributed to him. It's sometimes I think people's influence doesn't get attributed to them, and it's just it's just felt. You know, whereas with McCoy, it's 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 almost like a it's just a it's like a direct it's like a you know like an adjective or something like that. You know.
0: My guest is Andy Milne. He and his trio Unison, which features Johnny Bear on bass and Clarence Penn on drums, have a new album that's out on Sunnyside Records called The Remission. Andy, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you and uh, I promise I will not let another 13 years elapse before we do it again. <laughs> because who knows we might be having this interview in the, you know, the smoking crater of our post-apocalyptic future oh, if I let God. that long go. So, we'll try and do it. <laughs> we'll do it in a shorter time span from our respective okay, that'd be bunkers. Great. <laughs> All right, brother. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: If you value what you just heard, become a member for 5 or $10 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. Thanks to my guest this week, Andy Milne. On next week's show, saxophonist Brian Landris is back. Come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.